in that mythic story of Lion King, there's a cub by the name of Simba who is separated in his youth, um, separated from his father through a murder that is engineered by his uncle, Scar, the character who, the one who, who symbolizes evil uh, in this story. Scar arranges for this cub to be caught in a stampede of wildebeests. And he knows that his father, Mufasa, his son. He does. Simba is saved, but Mufasa is killed. And then Scar turns on Simba and accuses him in that moment of incredible grief and hurt and vulnerability. Uh, in that desperate moment, he accuses him of being the cause of his father's death. Simba doesn't know what to do. Brokenhearted, racked with guilt, Simba runs away from home. And for me, the enemy's number one central purpose with you and me is to separate us from the Father. And he'll use all kinds of ways uh, to do that. He'll use some kind of neglect to whisper. Nobody cares. In fact, you're not even worth caring about. Or he will use a sudden loss of innocence to whisper, this is a dangerous world and you're all alone. You've been abandoned. Or he'll use abuses to scream at a boy or a girl, this is all you're good for. And in all those different ways, he makes it almost impossible for you and me to know what Jesus knew. What we sang this morning, that you're a good, good father. Makes it impossible for you and me to come home to the father's heart toward us. The details our stories are all different. We each have our own story of wounds or of trauma. The effect, though, is always the same, and it's a wound deep in the heart, deep in the soul. And with that wound always comes um, suspicion of the Father and separation from Him. I have a very good friend um, who is recovering from 10 years uh, as a truck driver being involved in prostitution. 11 or 12 kids. All the time that he was involved in moral failure, he was Maintaining a high, rigid bar with his kids. He wanted the very best for them. And so in his hypocrisy, he was holding his kids to a high standard. They didn't know what, what all was wrong. They just knew in their spirits that things weren't right. <clears throat> there was a lot of pride. As we plowed deep together... 
he began to understand how his journey started at two or three years of age with a babysitter and some abuse issues. The enemy uses whatever he can, and I could unwrap that in a variety of ways. I, my first two years of college were, I thought I was going to end up in medicine, but Jesus changed my, my direction. But I love, I love medicine. I love reading the medical journals. I love reading research and the things that we're learning in the world of science. <clears throat> I've come to believe that the enemy starts at the moment of conception with you and me to rob us of closeness and intimacy with the Father and uh, to give you illustrations from, from research. But it happens. Fascinating. I told you how the enemy started with me at three or four years old with some, I, I think now probably innocent uh, exposure from uh, a gal that was living in our home in southeastern Kentucky, helping with sort of the mission focus there. But it was the way that the enemy got his foot in, in the door of my heart and began to build the curiosity and sort of an obsessive focus on sexuality. And my life was a dark, dark path. Um, in my heart, I was dying for victory and for freedom, for wholeness. And I would find places of where I, I thought I was free. But what I believe now was that I... I dealt with the surface part of that rather than going to the deep roots in my heart. Because you and I live out of our hearts, like I said. We may not know that, but it's, it's, that's where the decisions, choices, reactions, responses are there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be convinced that my wife and kids would be better off if I wasn't in that picture. I can take you back to a place where I planned out a perfect, perfect accident. And no one would have ever known that it was anything but an accident. But I'm so grateful today that Jesus didn't leave me at the time. And he heard the prayers of people around me. I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't taken me on that journey to the good, good father. There were things that I, I really wanted to get to last evening around that identity piece. And so I want, to, I want to pick that up just a bit. There's a story that you're all familiar with in Luke chapter 15 about, about the son who wanted his inheritance. He... He wasn't so much interested in a relationship with the Father, but he wanted all those things that the Father could give him. And his father could have had him stoned for that insult. When he asked for his inheritance, what he was really saying is, I wish you were dead. But his father was incredibly rich in mercy. You and I know that story as what? 
the prodigal son. <clears throat> Help me out. Now, what does prodigal mean? Wayward? Partly? What else? Okay, here's a guy that doesn't take long to check with Siri. Come back to that first definition that you read there, Steve. Steve, right? Okay, there's another piece of that definition you read. There was one. There it is. The Merriam-Webster that I, <coughs> the dictionary that I, I checked, one of the words that was sort of at the top of the list was extravagant or lavish. We often think about the reckless, wasteful, wayward, rebellious son in that story. But for me, it's not really a story about the son. That story is about the father who was extravagant and who was lavish with his mercy and his forgiveness before the son ever left home. It's about the father. It's about the good. So when I think of that story, for me, it's not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal father. That's the father that you and I need to come to know. And so, my prayer for each one of us is that we can keep coming back to Jesus and inviting Him to show us the Father. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 14. Jesus talked about going to prepare a place and coming back and getting us to take us to be with him. And it was who? Thomas who said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And then it was, wasn't Thomas, it was Philip who sort of goes off. And he said, Lord, just show us the Father. How many of you know that in the King James? Any of you memorize that? Show us the Father and it, what? John, sufficeth us. I have trouble wrapping my tongue around that. What does that word suffice mean? Satisfies, exactly. Other translations say, show us the Father and we'll be content. It's all we need. It'll be enough. Just show us the Father. I wish I would have been there to see Jesus' response to Philip. I can sort of see him. Duh! Philip, I've been with you for three years and you still don't get it? If you have seen me, what? seen the Father. I came. The reason I came was to show you the Father. When you and I let Jesus take us to the Father and see Him as the good, good Father,
the King of Kings, the worship song that we sang, the King of Kings calling you and me his own, then not much else matters. My prayer is that each of us will find our way to living in that kind of reality, that kind of truth. The world's broken. And people do. St- I was in a church out west sharing in a several days of a week of renewal meetings. And I was doing my best to share what the Holy Spirit gave me. And I can almost take you to the spot in the center aisle of the church. After church was over, this old older brother came up and with a lot of passion. He said, Don, I am getting sick of hearing all this love, love, love business. He said, we didn't have any problems here until you came. The church was very, very divided. Half a dozen families talking about leaving. It was broken. I want to talk about lies yet this morning. My, my first instinct was to get defensive and to tell him what I thought. Explain some truth to him as I saw it. But Jesus caught me. And I thought, I wonder why he's so angry. And then in my mind, I was that wayward son and I went running and I I saw my father running to meet me with his arms outstretched. And I ran into his arms and he wrapped me up. I said, Father, is there something you want me to learn in this? Did I say something that wasn't helpful? He said, ah, we'll talk about that later. But he said, for now, just, just okay. You won't get it all right. That doesn't change what I think of you. So, before we go on, there is liberty. Michael started us with that, but my question for you is, are there things that the Holy Spirit has been connecting to you this week? Maybe part of it, are you okay with with where I'm going with this? Is it connecting in your hearts, or am I still somewhere out over the edge and you're not... Are you okay so far? If so, it's this way. If not, it goes this way. Okay. Line upon line, the prophet said, We need to keep coming back and revisiting. Anyone else? I've been on a journey all my life of the Holy Spirit taking me to new places. 
I'm, my prayer is that tomorrow or next week that I'll be somewhere further down the road with Jesus. Anyone else? To me, it's amazing the way the Holy Spirit comes, 75 or 100 of us, and the Holy Spirit comes and takes the very same words that I share or that Matt shares, that Michael shares, and puts just a slightly different spin on what you all need. Uh, To me, that's just amazing. And... If and when you get married, let me tell you how that works out sometimes. You and your wife, your husband can go and sit through a sermon with DK or with John. And on the way home, you'll be talking about what the preacher said. And you may, you just might get into what he said because you heard it in very, very different ways. That's that's the good father. Who else? Anyone? Not going to take much time, but there is liberty. Amy said that some of this is things that she's heard, but she's been living life, and now concepts, perspectives have a new spin to them. They mean something different. Yeah, so true. Let's keep running to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll show us the way he works so that we can live the way we're made. If we don't understand how God works, we're going to not be able to live the way he planned for us to live, the way he created us to live. Last evening we were looking at the whole question of identity. Who, who am I? In the, in the big picture of things. How do I see God? Tozer said, what I think about when I think about me. I believe that. And the ways that I see God seeing me. What does God think about me? I started learning uh, the drywall trade right out of high school. Worked my way through college drywalling. Um, And I've done some here and there throughout the years. But at this point, I really don't care if I never, ever have to do any drywalling again. I just really don't want to. Uh, there have been times along the way when the ceilings or the work that, that we were involved in, they needed scaffolding, for example, in a, in a building like this. Um, 
I remember one time in Harrisonburg, Virginia, we were working on a Safeway. And if you remember the old, probably way before your time, but those Safeway stores were just a huge, rounded, like a big Quonset hut. And we were drywalling that. And so we had a lot of scaffolding. I don't know if you've ever stood on a high platform or scaffolding of some kind or other, uh, but there were days uh, when the end of a work day, when it felt like every muscle in my body was tight just from the effort of trying to keep from falling, to stay safe on that, on that scaffolding. Bonnie's older brother Galen is a masonry contractor west of here in northwestern uh, North Carolina. Two years ago, he was in Florida for a few weeks or months in the wintertime doing some work there. And a plank uh, or scaffolding let go. And it, it let him down. And he fell 12 or 15 feet on, on his feet. Just destroyed his ankles and his feet. And he's still recovering from that, from that damage a couple years later. And I, I watch him walk. And, and I can see that he was involved in some kind of painful accident. Good scaffolds hold, and faulty ones can do lifelong damage. When we build our, the platform of our lives uh, on lies, it's no different than a shaky, uncertain platform. Uh, and there are there are tremors, if you will, or aftershocks, like in Alaska after the earthquake. And you and I can count on the effects or the results showing up sooner or later in life, um, in our relationship. We've talked about symptoms. We, last evening we talked about the ways that we can recognize uh, the reality of a faulty foundation. Sometimes you and I tend to ignore the symptoms and we wait way long to begin repairs. A few years ago, out of my, my work with marriages and, and couples, I heard a statistic. I um, hope it never, ever happens to any of you. Um, but they did some research and asked the question, how long... Will a couple wait to find help after they begin to realize that things aren't going well for them? Any ideas what that might be? What the answer was? What they found? How long do you suppose a couple in marriage waits to get help when they discover things are getting shaky? Five years? If you're real close, Rex, it's six. Six years. My daughter in Boone sent me a text a week or so ago, and she said, Dad, we have good friends here in Boone who are talking to us about needing some help in their marriage, and uh, they wondered if they could get in touch with you. I said, sure. I don't know what it would be, but give them my phone number or have them call me. Just this morning... She sent me a text and she said, two days ago, 
he walked out of the marriage and said he's done. Um, and my heart aches because of the pain in that, in that relationship. For me, in my journey, there were several pretty glaring um, indicators that I was standing on lies. One was my defensiveness. When my foundation was threatened, my, my go-to response was to defend myself because of the internal uh, tremors, if you will. Another place for me that, that the tremors could, could show up was around any kind of conflict. Or even if I thought there might be a conflict or I, I perceived that it, it might go there. And I think I would, way down deep, I would subconsciously, without even being, I would feel like a boy again, experiencing my dad's disappointment. Um, And I think about Rich Mullins and all of those flashbacks along the way. With the light bulb swinging and his dad's harsh, harsh words. As I was working through some of this, uh, my mind went back to conversations that I had in another life um, with a board member where I was in an administrative position that I held for a time. And he was sort of getting in my face about some things. And there was a term that he used that I often think about. And that was adversarial. You know what that means? Comes Adversary. Conflict, And there was something that he was sensing in me at that point that I was blind to. Uh, but it's something that I've thought about along the way over the past couple years in terms of the imaginary conversations that I have in my head, uh, situations that begin to churn for me. And so I keep talking to Jesus about that. I'll be on a journey the rest of my life learning and longing to live out of my true identity that's mine in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some of the lies that are at the of these shaky foundations which affect everything we do. Remember, the reality is that you and I live out of what's true in our hearts. We don't live out of our heads so much. We can know all the right stuff up here, but we will live out what's true here. For a lot of years, I've alluded to this, maybe said it along the way, I think I did a fair job of preaching, teaching truth from Scripture around the essence of who God says He is in His eternal and unconditional love. I knew the truth. Because of another truth in my heart, I didn't feel or even act as if it back to this living out of what's true in our hearts. How many of you have ever played the airplane game? You know that one? Um, maybe we should have done that. But anyway, you, you put a plank on a brick or a sunk or something, and then you blindfold someone and 
and you stand them on the on the plank and you have a pilot on each end and then you have a cabin attendant flight attendant a stewardess that takes their hand and you take them on an airplane ride and you have the pilots you have the cabin attendant who's describing this the pilots are revving the engine and now they're taking off and the two guys on the end pick up this plank and shake it a little bit, jiggle it. You're standing there and completely blind. And they bring it an inch or two off of the floor. Now you're flying along. Somebody brings the chair very quietly. <clears throat> Wouldn't work too well here, but in a room, eight foot ceiling, someone brings a chair. You're going higher, higher, and then someone taps your head with a songbook. And you know what? Where are you? You're against the ceiling. You're three feet off the, off the floor. And you're cruising. Oh, we hit some turbulence and the, and the airplane shakes. And then, then the stewardess says, Oh no, we've had an engine failure. And the, the airplane trembles. Oh no, we've had another engine failure. We're going to have to bail out. But you've got a parachute. And so the the stewardess backs away and you're on the you're in the airplane and you know what? You're up here somewhere. And finally you have to jump. And in your mind you're preparing for this two or three foot jump. And in reality, you're this far. And every, everybody else is standing, standing around watching that. And it's hilarious. But you're living out of the truth, what's true for you. You and I do that all the time. I know of a young couple who got married, went on a honeymoon, had a delightful time beginning their marriage, came back. He goes off to work, comes home one day, throws his lunch pail on the counter. She's at the sink, and he walks over and just gives her a big bear hug. And she flows and throws him across the room. And he says, whoa, what's wrong? She says, don't do that to me. He says, we're married, aren't we? Well, yeah, but don't do that. Rather than sort of sweeping that and getting on with life, they decided to ask some why questions. And they sat down with a friend of mine and the Holy Spirit took them to a place where as a five or six year old she was trapped in a closet by a cousin and violated. Now she's grown. She's not helpless. And when her husband comes in and just wraps her in a warm embrace, her 
memory does an instantaneous search on her hard drive and asks the question, what does this feel like? And it goes there, and it feels like being trapped. And she says, no, it's not going to happen. Well, Jesus took her to a place of forgiving and of heart healing. And life was never the same again. I was in uh, at Der Dutchman in Sarasota with a friend for coffee, and a, a young woman walked by, and as she walked by, she looked at me and she said, are you, are you Christine's dad? <laughs> I said, well, yes, I am, but who are you? She said, our friends, uh, we lived in Catlett, Virginia, when they were living there. We were really good friends. Most of my early years, I was David Showalter's son. I'm house and lineage of David, just so you know. Um, and then I started school, and for 11 years, I think I, was, I told some of you this, for 11 years, every classroom I ever walked into, I heard something like this. Oh, you're Richard Showalter's brother. I'm one of six brothers. Richard's the, the oldest. I'm number two. There was always a second piece to that question, though. Are you as good a student as Richard is? And in my heart, I would say, no, not going there. I took myself out of any kind of, why do you think that was? Anybody? If I don't compete, then I can't lose. One of the most common lies, we're going to look at a couple lies that you and I might believe about who we are. One of the most common lies um, is that who we are is dependent on or connected to our achievement or our performance. It's as, it's as American as apple pie and baseball. Probably as Amish Mennonite as what? Um, a log cabin quilt or a clean garden. I don't know. And we take a lot of satisfaction in our Judeo-Christian work ethic. If you're from that conservative Anabaptist tribe, you know what I mean when I say <clears throat> in our tribe this performance lie can get all incredibly complicated by our faith or our spirituality. Because in church we're valued if we do, if we do some of those acceptable kinds of things. When we measure up to whatever the standards are that are held, when we serve or we give or we behave in certain correct ways, and when we don't measure up, we face nation, we face shame, or we sometimes face separation. Not for you guys, but for me. I know very well the temptation to pull on the mask and act as if everything is all right. 
if every, as if everything is fine when inside I'm dying. I suspect, not you guys, but a lot of people that I meet, I think we're trained to be consummate hypocrites. I did it, and I didn't even know about it. Uh, during part of our life, in my other life, we lived about an hour from the church that we were attending. I was working hard all week uh, as a school administrator. My wife wasn't working. All she did was look after four little kids all week long. She didn't have a real job. You get the, you get that? And so Sunday morning, after me working hard all week, I'd, I'd hug my pillow for a few extra minutes. I'd jump up and shower and get ready for church. And then I would go to the car, and I would give her some Sunday morning music to help her get to the car with the kids. All she had to do was get four little kids up in bed and dressed and ready for church. Doesn't that sound noble of me? And so we'd head off to church. We weren't yelling and screaming, but the air was, was so thick in the car you could have just cut it and, and it would have fallen out. It was quiet. But the very moment that we pulled into the parking lot at church, we had a Sunday miracle. And we could go into church, we could meet, hi, how are you? All good, right? And that miracle would last for about two hours until we got back in the car. Well, what were we teaching our kids? Hypocrisy. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference how tense, how bad things are at home. But when we go to church, we pull on the masks. And we may even get married. We come to marriage and I'm still wearing my mask. And I look out through my little eye holes and all I see is another mask and I eyes. And there's no relationship. I can't love a mask, can't be loved by someone else. That was a, a detour. I've been on a journey of understanding how some of those lies found root in my heart. And one was around that journey of being Richard Showalter's brother. Another was in the expectations that I grew up with. I. It's not all bad. Probably wasn't what my parents wanted me to, to live under or to expect. They didn't want to communicate. Probably more about what the enemy did with that in my heart. And so my question for you, when you think about your journey with the Father, can you sense any symptoms of this lie around performance or achievement? For you and me, the incredible good news is that we have a father, a good father who doesn't, when we get everything right, and he doesn't love us any less when we screw up, get things wrong. That's one that I still have trouble sometimes wrapping my mind around that perspective.
There's nothing I can do to get my father to love me any more than he does right now. And there's nothing, this is even worse, there is nothing that you and I can do that will cause him to love us any less than he does right now. When I live there, I'm telling you, it's amazing freedom. Moving on. Another lie that can get you and me tangled up is that our value depends on whether people like us. I watch people running around trying to keep everybody happy and to get people's approval. (laughs) None of you, but sometimes a person will take on the responsibility for mom and dad's relationship, for peace or harmony, good relationships in the family. And sometimes it's not about maybe just a handful of people or maybe just one person that I'm, ah, I have to keep happy. I'm on a journey. You may have heard me quote Ken Davis's line, and I go back as often. Ken says, there is no greater freedom than in learning to live as if you have nothing to prove Nothing to hide, nothing to lose. I don't always live there, but I'm running there as hard as I can. It's where I'm, I'm determined that that's how I want to live. So I come to the Cleveland Youth Conference, and I have things that I believe the Holy Spirit wants me to share. And so I keep running back to the Holy Spirit and saying, am I pulling together the things that you want me to share? Sometimes I think maybe there's, there are things yet that I still need to prove. There is a mind cannot be deceived, can't be ignored. When we build the foundation on lies, I promise you, it will eventually show up. When I get defensive or hurt by someone's criticism, I, I, I want to quickly trace it back to what I need from other people in terms of acceptance or approval. Get to the root and change the foundation. When you and I deal with heart issues, we'll find the cure for the symptoms. If I begin to get upset or irritated, frustrated, because I'm running a tight schedule and I'm, I'm, I'm doing more to keep people happy or whatever, then I need to remember it's not about them. But it's about me and a foundation that may be getting a little shaky. I was in a situation recently where I felt like I was being taken advantage of and being used wrongly. I, I had committed myself to participating in an event hosted by a good friend of mine, and I wanted to go. It was his event, and so I was determined to go with no agenda of my own. But you know, it was a struggle for me, I realized, to just lay it down and give up what I thought should be happening. And I went running to Jesus, and I found my identity and who I am as his son. And my need for affirmation Him to be happy with me sort of faded. 
That takes us into the third basic lie that you and I often see, and that being that our worth or our value um, lies in being in control of others, of life, of situation. I know the temptation to find my value in the results of my efforts. And so I, I, I want to be in control of the outcome. So I keep learning to do my best at the cultivating, the planting, the whatever, and leave the harvest to the Father. I've, I've said I can't, I can't heal anyone's heart. I can't fix things. But I can love like Jesus loved do my best to get there and then leave the Holy Spirit to the rest. One of the things that I've learned and I keep learning and coming back to is that a common denominator of this need to control is often around sexual abuse. I think part of my need to be in control came from that, also came from guilt, where I say that happened when I was young and helped, but I'm grown now and nobody Nobody, but nobody will ever hurt me like that again. And so I choose control as a way to be safe. You're not, you're not going to get to me. There's a, a kind of fear within me that can be overpowering, and so I say, no, ain't going to happen. I build walls on top of faulty foundation. I keep God out. I keep other people out. I have a friend whose mother, to this day, I think, was the angriest and most controlling person that I've ever met. But when I heard her story, I wept. The, the abuse that she experienced at the hands of her brothers as a two-year-old, three-year-old, was beyond horrific. It was unspeakable. And then I understood why she was determined to make sure that no one would ever, ever, ever get close enough to do that kind of thing again. And so as you reflect with the Holy Spirit this morning, do you sense that control may have been, still is an issue for you. Have you ever gotten any kind of feedback, reaction that you may tend to be controlling? Do you get fearful or anxious or angry if you feel like things are out of control? The profound news for you and me from Jesus is that His view of us has nothing to do with whether we're in control. When you and I come to Jesus to find rest, when we experience Him to be the truth in our hearts, the bottom line is this. Your value and mine was forever also. We sang it this morning. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can ever separate you and me from His love. But just because you and I know this in our heads ultimately means not much. 
because things change for you and me when Jesus comes by the Holy Spirit and takes it from here and settles it the last 18 inches into our hearts. That's where we live. When it's real there, then we hang on to it. Like we used to say in Eastern Kentucky, come hell or high water, my value is settled at the cross. There's a reality that I, I want Bonnie to love me. I, I, I want you guys to like me. <laughs> but, you know, I want to live at a place where my value doesn't depend on that. And he, even if you don't, there'll be, a, there'll be a bump in the road for me. But then I'll run and it'll be okay. Because when I run to my Father, you know what I see? I see His eyes light up. And I see His eyes sparkle when He sees me coming. Not because I've gotten it right. Not because I'm doing so well. But just because I'm His Son. And because He not only loves me, He really likes me a lot. (laughs) It doesn't get any better than that for me. So how do we get there? We invite the Holy Spirit to come and simply be the voice of Jesus and affirm the truth of His love to our hearts. You and I can't change or heal a heart. Jesus said that that's what He came to do. I have a hard time hearing the voice of the shepherd when I'm running, when I'm distracted with stuff. And I need to slow down and to be quiet, to listen, to anticipate his whisper. And then he comes. As he comes, I trust him to help me identify whatever lies may be in my foundation. It was the performance lie, the lie that I needed to be in control to find worth and value. There's also choices that I need to make about what I'm going to do with what the Holy Spirit says. One author said, I choose to reposition the issue of my value. I think it's about to latch on to what the Holy Spirit says about me and Jesus and to see that foundation shifting. And when the enemy comes in with the lies, I renounce the lies and I Break any agreement that I've made with those lies. And I choose to stand on the truth. I think it's important for you and me as we understand what the lies are. To simply do business with the Holy Spirit. And invite Jesus to come and break any agreement that you and I have made with those lies. More often that I catch my platform sort of starting to shake. More that I run to Jesus and affirm His truth, what He says about me. And I hear it in that renewal of my mind, the more secure I'll be in, in the truth of who I am. Like Paul says in Ephesians, in Christ. I'm a beloved son. I can't just sit in my lazy boy, though, and expect Jesus to do it all. He has His part, I have my part. And so I choose to live out of what I know is true. In His grace. Let's wrap this up.
for me, there's a couple kind of unique cases of what I call a wounded, a wounded identity. I've spent time with people over the last year or so who would meet Jesus and who would seemingly experience, they would hear from Jesus and experience Jesus as the truth. They'd find new places of freedom, but it was like it wouldn't stick. It would just, wouldn't hold. It would leak away like there was a hole there. I think holes can form uh, in the bottom of our hearts when we grow up in an environment that's just constantly critical. I think, I think Rich Mullins, that story is sort of classic case in point. Where no matter how hard you try, you can never get it right. A home perhaps where there was no physical affection. You were loved. There were no hugs, no loving touches. Or worse yet, that culture of shame where your identity was cursed. Shame on you. Leaving you with a sense that you can't be worth living. We talked about shame and guilt. Shame's not like guilt. You and I can't repent of shame. I get a little concerned when I hear people talking about trying to renounce a spirit of pain. I can't repent. You and I cannot repent of a broken heart. We need Jesus to come and heal. We need people around us who can be Jesus to us. Another hole that can be formed in my identity container um, is if I grow up in a home where there is spiritual or emotional or sexual abuse, my will gets, gets bent and I end up with a victim mentality. I'm victimized, but I am not a victim. I've sat with a number of couples where I sensed there was a victim mentality. And I hate to tell you, but we didn't really get very far. I think we're seeing an increase in, in, in our time right now, an increase of victimization as a result of abuse or abandonment, neglect, family, domestic violence, and those kind of things. And perhaps a kind of smothering, a kind of smothering, controlling environment that robs a child of the strength to be a whole person. I've been seeing more and more of that kind of thing over the past several years. And I don't know, out of your generation and where you live, I think there's a kind of, what, fatalistic, overpowering worldview that you're bombarded with. And, and along with that, a sense of entitlement where, eh, it's not my this, it's not my fault. And it's really, really tough. There has to be a, a strong way that the Holy Spirit shows up. And so for you and me, the overwhelming, the profound reality is that your identity and mine is wrapped up in a Father who's chosen you and me as beloved sons and daughters, having nothing to do with who I am 
who you are, but because of who he is. And out of his love comes that rock solid, that bottom line message about our value in his eyes. Let's make sure we get our foundations right.